choosing and the looking, the having where it meets the being free. Yeah, we know the body is just a loner. You might two taps out on your honer. Or help us search for what just cannot be. Dispatch half along the riverbank, the other half with me. Welcome to Lulu. Three times in my life, I've been certain of my own imminent death. Not like nerves before a surgery, or I'm genuinely terrified, or I'm too high to remember how to breathe. Certain like, well, I guess this is how the curtain drops. The first time. It was a car that stalled, crossing a country highway. The second time, I was hopelessly lost in the woods for four days. I was sitting on a log, trying to figure out how to stop walking in circles, when a dog finally found me. The third time involved a moment of great potential violence. On a university campus, which led to being barricaded for over two hours in a little black box theater. There were maybe forty of us locked in there, really living in the experience together. What really sticks with me is the wide range of responses that played out in that room. Some folks called their families to say they loved them. Some people got practical, organizing others like, "You go over here. You go over there. You move this." A lady made a motivational speech about how if the bad guy busts in, we'll storm him together and go out fighting. One kid put in headphones, and he kind of danced around there among the theater seats. One kid turned into a chatterbox. He just couldn't let the air go quiet for a second. Like that's when the bad thing would happen. Like talking would stave off the worst. An older gentleman told me, in a grisly, self-aware kind of way, that he couldn't think about his family. Because if he thought about his family, he'd break down. And then he'd be useless. He stood with his fists raised by a set of doors, poised to strike. Some laughed and cracked jokes. Cracked jokes to people who were sobbing. The sense of panic was more vivid here than in the stalled car or the woods. It felt like we were moving 
so slowly toward an inevitable moment together, but stuck waiting. For my part, I remember thinking to myself, you can only control what you can control. I picked a arbitrary little patch of floor, and I said, this is my spot. My spot. Territorial. There wasn't any doubt in my mind that I would die for that little patch of floor, which was painted to look like a parlor for a production of some French comedy of manners. I wouldn't even let any of the other captives cross it. I would have used my teeth to keep anyone off it if I had to. And the voice in the back of my head was like, wow, you're really going to a place, aren't you? That's all to say that there's no knowing how you'll react to a situation until you're in it. My reaction to the disappearance of Duncan Coons also surprises me. I remember referring to him in an early recording as a likely future victim. And knowing that, having the background to know that, and coming all the way across the country to do something about that and prevent it, you'd think I'd feel guilty. I don't feel guilty. I feel doomed to a lifetime of guilt. But for now, I feel like, what can we do? You have forever to hate yourself, but what active thing can you do today that you won't be able to do in a day? or a month, or a decade. I can use my resources. My recordings. I have a camera trained on the front door of the Coon's house. And one at the back. And one pointed at the dining room window, which had the curtains drawn shut that night. Five microphones inside the house. But... Duncan didn't leave out the front or back door. I see him enter, I don't see him leave. So, I think one of two things must have happened. Either he's still in the house, but that seems unlikely, I'm not sure how that would work. Or, he went out the laundry room window. I admit it, I do have blind spots. He could have gone from there, in a particular zigzagging pattern, through two neighboring yards, and continued on, zigzagging in just such a way, into and through the woods at the back of the subdivision. But how would he know to do that? Meanwhile, Brownie. wasn't the best time to go on a scavenge, but it was a good scavenge. 
out of my rounds, hit the deeper corners of the state and around. Come home better part of a week later with love truck all loaded up, gonna make four or five times my money easy. But I just wanted to be home. Get the good news on Mookie, see the old lady, she's in a mood. See my cousin, get the rundown on the, the chemistry experiment. Finally get in sometime after four this morning, come driving in, knock over a trash can that doesn't go there. But I'm home. And it's weird. It's dark, not even the nightlight on in the hall. The boy wouldn't stand for that. It's already hard enough for him to look around. And a sniff. And it feels like the air hasn't moved. Or the doors of the windows haven't been opened in days. Makes you not able to breathe. So I step in the back door and I call it to my cousin. Figure maybe he's asleep on the couch or somewhere and he doesn't say something. And I call it to Tamara and she doesn't say something. Something's really wrong here. And I plop down the lazy boy, and I really start to look around, and things are missing. Tomorrow things, boy things, cousin things, even Mookie stuff. But what happened here? Did everybody leave me? Was it such a bad time for a scavenge? Nothing good is alive anymore. I don't want to admit this, but until Brownie said that, I had no idea that Tamara had left him. I knew his cousin had left, started a brawl at the barbecue palace, and caught a bus out of town. But everything revolves around Duncan right now, which does make me fear new blind spots opening up. I even sent it up the chain of command to my splinter cell. I pushed the proverbial big red emergency button. I'm in over my head. I need backup. We'll see if they send the cavalry. Anyhow, if you count myself among the crowd, having retroactively seen my footage of Duncan entering the house, there are four of us who either saw or heard him within an hour of one another before he vanished. His mother, Janet, heard him call out. Last night, he came in at the tail end of curfew, but I didn't even say anything. He called out, Night, Mom, like it was any other kind of night. Mrs. Springer, Candace Bauer's foster mom, gave him a ride home. And then there's... Candace herself. Candace Bauer. I got in trouble with my foster people. And I was in trouble anyway. I guess I messed up in math, so I don't officially, officially get to graduate until I do stupid summer school. Well, I'll admit it, I was out past curfew. I was looking for Duncan. So I was out late. So yeah, I slept in. So yeah, I missed one day of class. I thought Duncan was more important. And the office lady calls, leaves a voice message at the home. I kind of just don't give a crap right now. I, I just deleted it. 
And they figure it out pretty quick, and now they want to talk to me. Why do I have to explain myself to every single authority figure who feels like they need to know my life story? I don't think I got a good education here. I don't think this school suddenly decided to care about me. I think they care enough to get me to shut up and do the work to get a C so they can close the book on me and never think about me again. And they say it like, how are you feeling? Tell me what you're going through. Hey girl, what's going on with you? It's so fake. So I I get a call down to the office and Principal Peacock's there and he has this brown envelope like they put evidence in. And I'm like, what's that? And he looks all serious and kind of bobs his head and I'm thinking, oh God, this is how they tell me Duncan's dead. And I open the folder and it's, are prom pictures. Me and him. In the clothes he got us with his burger money. And and I look up at Principal Peacock and he's saying stuff like, it's okay. It's gonna be okay. Are you okay? And I'm like, dude, why are you forcing yourself into this situation? Why did you set it up like this? Act like you're handing me bad news, get all involved in like, experiencing my grief or something. It's messed up. Everybody wants to make this about them. Yes, sorry I missed class. I was actually trying to find Duncan. Just a child. Oh, the wanted, the beguiled, the one who wants, the haunted, again, the child. to judge what people do when they're facing adversity. But part of me wishes I could get Deputy Steves out of his feelings and remind him, a person is missing. You're a deputy. You have a job to do. Keep your eye on the ball. Deputy Steve Steves the Fourth.
I still believe that Sergeant O'Connell and I can handle anything together. But then my declaration, the situation I've put us in, I don't see at this moment how we can succeed. She won't even share a squad car with me. It doesn't matter that what I said was true. I disrupted our dynamic. I wish we could just go back, but good cops don't wish. So this morning I'm pulling Graveyard at the station. She comes in around 4.41, and she gives me this weak, sad little wave as she goes by me straight toward her office, doesn't even look at me. And that's the moment my constitution says, I've had enough, because I say, Sergeant O'Connell, we need to talk. And she stops and turns on her heels, and she looks at me dead on and says, Deputy Steves the Fourth, no, we do not. And I say, but I, and she says, Deputy? And she walks up to me, and she grabs my hand, and she puts my special watch up close to my face, and she says, Do you know how much trouble you got me in? And she starts to storm away, and I holler after her, So I guess I can go home now? She doesn't say anything. And I say, Sergeant O'Connell, you gave me this watch. I thought it was for wearing. I don't know what else I was supposed to do. And finally, she says, go home, Steve. And I went. And I was in the middle of having a cry on the drive home when it struck me. I didn't even tell her about the new information, the bad news. So I had to turn the car around, back to the station, go face her again. At the time, the bad news was a vague lead that didn't seem to have much to it. Just something that needed to be looked into. Relaying what came of the bad news. Police Sergeant Marianne O'Connell. We get a missing person from time to time, like anywhere. I mean, usually it's a hunting accident, a fishing accident, a car accident. Some kind of accident. If it's not somebody we know, it's somebody somebody we know knows. And everybody gets mobilized here, which is, is what we're seeing right now. With Duncan Coons, Janet and Roy's son. Oh, he's 17 years old. Captain of the rowing team. So, what do we know? Uh, graduation day is June 13th. The Coons' extended family was in town. They all went to dinner uh, the night before. Eight o'clock that evening, Duncan's dropped off at the Springer's foster home. Duncan and Candace Bauer hold hands, watch TV in the living room for roughly an hour before curfew runs out. Mrs. Springer agrees to drive Duncan home. They chat about graduation and college plans, prom. He asks questions about Candace Bauer. He's probing around for a good gift idea for Candace's birthday, which is August 21st. So he's thinking forward. He's making plans, presumably presuming he's going to be around on August 21st. Mrs. Springer drops Duncan off in the driveway of his home. She idles out front. She's being sure he gets inside safe. All right, at 921, Duncan entered the home. 
his mother confirms to have heard his voice as he entered. He waved goodnight to Mrs. Springer. And that was the last time he was seen outside his home. Our search party comes together quickly, right? We have our phone trees in place, our maps, our fine Duncan t-shirts. And we've been combing every inch of this county, calling his name for the past four days. This morning, local business owner Sally Langerhans' search party turned up a body on the wooded, state-owned property uh, to the immediate north of Jackson Family Apples. The body was wearing a plaid pattern shirt, a hard hat, a reflective vest, and I probably shouldn't have even said that much. Um, We'll have more information. It'll be made available once the autopsy has been completed and the identity of the body's been confirmed. The place between the losing and the looking I lost you as I loved you as I smiled I gave an inch to apprehension It is a mile now by extension Cut the tension I'm not seeing with a blade What beautiful intentions So full and in 